everyone. Thanks for joining us for First College Ministries College Worship Gathering. We hope that what you hear will encourage you and challenge you to be more like Jesus in your everyday lives. If you're a college student in the Tuscaloosa area, please join us Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. for college worship. You can learn more about First College Ministry at firstcollegeministry.org. Well, like I said, good evening. I am super glad that you're back with us this week. Um, a few weeks ago, we began, actually, I guess four weeks ago now, we began a series called Pillars, where we're discussing um, in life that there is a greater purpose, that we are meant to live a life in which we are reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. And so far, we've covered three pillars, with our fourth being tonight. Uh, we began a few weeks ago with Scripture alone, or Sola Scriptura, if you remember that, discussing the authority of God's Word in the life of the believer. We followed that up with grace alone, or sola gratia, discussing God's unmerited favor shown to us through Jesus, namely his initiative on our behalf based upon his character. And if you remember, I mentioned a brief explanation of God's character from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. I was going to read that at the front end, but I'm going to save that for the end. Um, but just keep that passage in mind, Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Um, and I, sh I wanted to share that again tonight, and we'll come back to it, because I think we will continue to see God's character as the basis of what we're discussing, a major player in our discussion of the pillars. And last week, we walked through faith alone, or sola fide. In our time together, we noted that faith could be defined as trust in and application of God's character in our lives. And tonight, we turn our attention to the ever-important, crucial pillar of Christ alone, or solus Christus. So I want to sum up where we are um, and I think we can view the pillars that we've covered thus far like this. So these are going to be on the screen. These are the brief rundown. Number one, sola scriptura. I want you to see it as God's authoritative communication with his people. Number two, sola gratia, God's initiative on our behalf through the application of his character. Number three, sola fide, the channel of receiving God's grace as we trust in his character. And four, tonight, solus Christus, the means by which God provides for us salvation. The means for which God provides for us salvation. So before we dive in too deeply, I want to ground ourselves in God's authoritative word. And if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We will begin reading in verse 1. Now I want to give you a little bit of warning. Tonight we're going to be in scripture. Um, there's this thing that I, when you're talking about Jesus and we're talking about Christ alone, we really already have a witness to that truth. And so I want to rely on that pretty heavily. So tonight we will be in Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read portions of this chapter but it's going to be a decent chunk. All right. So hear now the word of the Lord according to the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now skip down with me to verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And jump down again with me one more time to verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. 
For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you are willing and able, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for your word and our access to it. We thank you that you have blessed us with your inspired written word, and that we have that authority in our lives that we can return to, that we can seek your face in, and we can find your truth in. And so I pray, Father, that you continue to go before us tonight as we seek to learn more about how you have provided for us through your Son. Lord, this is an important pillar as we cover these five, and I ask God that you would help us to understand the weight and the the beauty of the truth that we get to walk through tonight. And so, Lord, I do ask that you make a way for us in the text that we cover, that you make a way for us in our conversation tonight, and Lord, ultimately, that you would speak for your servants who are listening. For it's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, so I want to give you a little bit of context as to why this seems to be one of the most crucial, if not the most crucial, pillar of the Reformation, okay? During the time of the Reformers, one of the primary reasons they felt, if not the primary reason they felt Reformation was necessary, was that the presiding church of the day had fallen into adding requirements to the gospel. And if you recall, when I use that term gospel, we pretty succinctly mean the good news that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and life. That he is our passage to reconciliation with God the Father because we needed a savior and God gave us his son. He died on the cross bearing our sins and took them to death, but rose again conquering the wages of sin, which is death. And we now walk in victory and in salvation because of what Christ has done. That is gospel in a nutshell. And so when we talk about the the added requirements to the biblical gospel, we talk about what we take and add to the discussion of what we just mentioned, meaning this good news of Jesus. And according to scripture, there is nothing that we need to add to the gospel. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more. But in their day, it had become this idea, or this idea had arisen, that to be saved, followers of Jesus needed to trust in Jesus for their salvation, but they also had to perform other rites, other ceremonies, participate in sacraments and other things. Now, those things are good in and of themselves, and they help us to worship the Lord, but they are not means to salvation. Halleck and Haley, our good friends throughout this series, state this. At the time of the Reformation, it was being taught that salvation was found in Jesus and Jesus and good works, Jesus and baptism, Jesus and mass, and confession, and prayers to the saints, and, 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 as you can imagine, no one ever knew if they were okay with God. Jesus and theology plagued them with questions. Have I done enough? Am I doing enough now? In other words, Christ alone or solus Christus really boils down to this question of the sufficiency of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for our salvation. And the reformers answered this question with a resounding, yes, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were completely sufficient. Thus, 
Christ alone. Halleck and Haley continue. This is precisely what solus Christus means. It means that salvation is not found in Jesus and or Jesus plus anything. Rather, salvation is found through the sufficient work of Christ's life, death, and resurrection alone. So from a historical and theological perspective, this is no small issue. This is no small issue, and the sufficiency of Christ's work on our behalf is seismic. It's utterly important, and it shakes up everything in our lives if we respond to it. And we're going to discuss this a bit more, but the notion of Christ alone also points us to the exclusivity of Jesus as our means of reconciliation. And what I mean by that is being made right with God. John 14, 6 famously states, Jesus said to him, talking about Nicodemus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this leads me to our first main point this evening. Why do we need a way back to the Father? Why do we need a way back to the Father? Well, let's look back at our main passage in verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then jump to verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And then in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Do you catch a common theme from these verses. Yes, we can see the goodness of God, but why must he show us his kindness and his goodness? Because we are sinners, according to these verses, because we are trespassers, because we are condemned in the eyes of God, because of sin. And I want to touch really quickly, because I don't know how well I'm going to be able to unpack this later, but when it talks about this one trespass, we're looking at Adam, we're looking at the first man, we're looking at that interaction that he had in the garden And he rejected God, he and his wife Eve, they rejected God and they chose themselves, put themselves on the throne of God, saying that we want to have the knowledge of good and evil versus trusting in the command that God gave them. That trespass is this one man who trespassed. That trespass is what allowed and invited sin into our existence as humanity. Okay, so just keep that in mind. But we are sinners, we are trespassers, we are condemned because of that reality. And if you recall from previous weeks, none of us can escape this. Romans 3.23 states, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And more than that, our favorite passage from the beginning of this series, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." This is not the most, you know, beautiful picture painted of humanity, right? I mean, we see these descriptions that we were dead in trespasses, that we walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power, and that we were known as children of wrath in God's eyes. All of this is rooted in what occurred when humanity rebelled against God's desire in that Genesis 3 account. In that moment... Sin, or our trespasses against an entirely righteous and holy creator, entered into our existence, as I already mentioned. Humanity rejected God. We chose ourselves, and the Lord's wrath is justified based on that choice. Because one question he asked of us, 
One command he gave us. Do not eat of the fruit of that tree. And of course, our ancestors did. And because of that, we're born into sin. This is a fact. It's into a continual desire to promote the worship of ourself. All along the way, we elevate the creations of our hands and the notions of notoriety in our cultures, and we elevate them to these, this status of small gods in our lives. We want more. We want to earn more. We want to achieve more. We want to be more popular. We want to be more known. We want to be an influencer. We want to have followers. We want to be seen as important. And what's really interesting about that fact is it's rooted in the fact that we were created as important beings, loved by an all-important God. Bearing his image, we are born to worship him, and so we seek to worship any and everything else because we've rebelled against him. We worship false gods. We trespass against the God of all creation. We follow the course of this world. In other words, we are dead in our spiritual trespasses. So yeah, in the eyes of a holy God, we need a way back. We need a way back to a right relationship with him. We need communion with him. We need closeness with the one, capital O, who created us in his image because that's what we are created for. And Jesus clearly states that he is that way. And he does so after centuries of prophecies describe his coming on our behalf. And I cannot cover all of this tonight, but if you want to go back and look at some of the messianic prophecies in the scripture, there's so many accounts that point to Jesus, that Jesus fulfilled. So I would encourage you to do that. So we know the way back to the Father. It's clear to us. Jesus has made that known. And that leads us to our next question. How did God provide a way back through Jesus? Well, if you remember from last week, and if you weren't here with us, we used this term justification. We talked about faith and being justified by faith in Jesus because of grace. We talked about faith being this channel of grace, but pointed toward Jesus, whom is the source of justification. So it's this legal term in the scriptures that point to this image of being declared innocent or right in the eyes of a judge. And the emphasis last week was that we are actually justified by our faith in Jesus, and that makes us right in the eyes of God, our great judge. So it's our trust in Jesus that is accomplished on behalf of humanity that, that justifies us in God's eyes. It is our channel of responding to his grace. But I wanted to walk through this a bit more of how that justification takes place this evening because this is crucial. And at risk of maybe being too technical, I just really think that this is helpful for us. Because when we talk about having faith in Jesus, we have to understand what he has done for us, what we're having faith in so I want to pause here and unpack this a bit more. In the Old Testament, God created these, or he established these routines, these ceremonies, and these rites for his people, the Israelites. They were his called out people. They were a holy people, set apart, a, a, a holy people of royal priests, many, meaning that they were to depict that they were special in the eyes of God because God is special and deserving of all praise and honor and glory and power. So they were a priest nation. And because of that, they had things asked of them that would show them that they were set apart. And we'll get to this later, but they were physically demarcated with circumcision, the males of the tribes. But also they were asked to participate in temple worship and sacrificial rites and all of these things that showed the people around them that God was the most important thing and that they were dependent upon him for their deliverance, their sustenance, and for the forgiveness of their sins against him. In Leviticus 16, the Lord shares with Moses, he gives this, this list of like, this is how you do this. And it's pretty interesting. Um, not the easiest thing to read in your early morning devotions, if you guys have been there in your, your yearly reading plan. This is kind of that part of the Bible where we all get bogged down. We're like, maybe we'll just restart. 
Um, but this is very, very intriguing because God shares with Moses what he requires from the people to cleanse them of their sins and impurities in his eyes on a yearly basis. And I want to emphasize in his eyes because God is choosing to forgive their sins based on what they're doing. Remember that. He is choosing to forgive their sins for that. It is not them sacrificing and making him forgive their sins. He is choosing to interact with his people this way. So in Leviticus, the Day of Atonement is outlined for Moses or Yom Kippur. Some of you may recognize that. Still practiced by our Jews throughout the world. The ceremony is one of great importance for God's people in the scriptures because it shows him that they recognize his holiness, their shortcomings, and that they desire to be in right relationship with him. It's a very important day of the year, and the day is full of specific tasks. The priest has to wear a certain garment. He has to prepare himself, wash himself, not enter into a room until a certain thing is done. He has to sacrifice a certain animal, take the blood, and sprinkle it all across the other parts that are necessary for the task at hand. There's just a lot of things that go into it. And I'm not in a position this evening, or ever really, to discuss why God chose to offer purification in this way. Or why he required the blood of these specific animals, namely a bull and a goat, to show the people's sincerity. But he did. And it's worth noting. It's worth noting because the Lord does not do away with our need for atonement. It doesn't change from that moment in the Old Testament rites to today. We need atonement for our sins. We are just as sinful as the nation of Israel. We talked about that. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. But part of why the gospel is considered good news for us is that God provided the ultimate atonement for humanity's sin through his son Jesus. Look with me again in our main passage, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that, here it is again, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by whose blood? His blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And in earlier, in Romans, Paul writes this in chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Here it is. Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And in language that relates very clearly to Leviticus 16... And depicts for us that Jesus is not the fulfiller, that Jesus is the fulfiller of God's requirements. Let's look at Hebrews 9, 12 through 16. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, this is pointing directly back. That's why I love the book of Hebrews. If you ever want to geek out on how the Old Testament and New Testament actually are related and do matter for one another, Hebrews is where you go. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He's talking about the temple or the tabernacle. But in this, he's talking about the kingdom of God. He entered once for all into the holy places, meaning the inner room, the inner chamber of the temple, 
not by means of the blood of goats and calves, Leviticus 16, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That's key for us. How often did the Day of Atonement have to happen? This is a, this is a lob, I told you earlier. Once a year. Once a year. And what does it say here? By means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. John Piper says this infinite amount of an infinite son's blood provides eternal redemption. And I love that image. And it continues, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is the way back. Jesus is the way back because of the atonement, because of what he did, how he lived a perfect life, how he died a terrible death, bearing our sins, all of humanity's sins upon his shoulders, and raising to life again, conquering the wages of our sin. Jesus has made a way. He is the way. The truth and the life, and that is seen explicitly through his atoning for our sins upon the cross. So we have that. What are we talking about when we say we have faith in Christ and what he's done on the cross? That's the atonement. He's given his life, his blood on our behalf to pay the, the wages of our sin. But before we move on, I want to spend just a couple of minutes on some important elements of the atonement. So if we can, let's look briefly at a cause of the atonement or the cause of the atonement. And Wayne Grudem, he's a guy that I've mentioned previously in this series. Um, you've heard me quote him a few times. He talks about the cause of the atonement being the love and justice of God. The love and justice of God. So remember earlier when I said the character of God would continue to play a part in our discussion of the pillars? This is exactly what I meant. The love and justice of God. Because let's return to that passage in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, talking about Moses, and he said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The reason the atonement happened is because of who God is. His love and his justice. He is love. And his love for his creation led him to give his only son on our behalf. Look with me, I have a couple of verses here. John 3.16, our classic, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Next, let's continue with John's writings and turn to his epistles. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, talking about Jesus, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And then 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation is a mouthful when you're trying to say it quickly, but it's also a big word that means a lot for us because propitiation is a word that means full payment or a completed action that brings satisfaction. In other words, it means that Christ has atoned for our sins and God is satisfied with what Christ has done on our behalf. So God looks at his son's sacrifice and says, I am pleased 
and I take what he's done, and it's a credit to our accounts that we're forgiven. And I wanted to cover this, but I, I wanted to do it briefly. There's this also this question of the necessity of atonement. And I really love the discussion about this because when we talk about God necessarily doing something, we can't actually say that because God doesn't necessarily do anything in our minds, right? Because he is God. But there is this idea of was the atonement necessary? And there's this notion of consequent absolute necessity. I want you to say it with me. Consequent, come on. Consequent absolute necessity. And what that means is that once God chose to make a way for us in salvation, because he didn't have to, much like he didn't have to forgive the sins of those that participated in the Day of Atonement, but once God chose to make a way through for our salvation, there was only one way that would do. Jesus. So the necessity of atonement being Christ only happens because of the Understanding that God said, hey, I really do want to make a way for them. And the only way is my son. And what's really interesting, if you want to blow your mind, is to think about when God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit decided to make a way for us was eternally existent. And we're like, wait, he hadn't created us yet and he decided to do this? Absolutely, because we are not plan B. We were always created for his worship. He has always loved us and he has always sought to make a way for us in his son. And it leads us to our next sub-point. Our role in the atonement. I want to turn now to the sage old words of good old Johnny Piper. He writes, the Christian gospel includes this truth, Christ alone, his blood and righteousness and resurrection life is the only basis on which God's justice is satisfied for us in Christ forever. I share this because in light of the atonement and of course as we seek to better understand solus Christus or Christ alone, we must remember or we have to come to terms with the truth that we do not play a role in our salvation. You've heard us talk about this for the last three weeks. We do not play a role in our salvation or our atonement. And according to the scriptures we've already discussed this evening, the truth is actually the opposite. We would choose our sin and trespass every time without the intervention of our good and gracious God. In fact, Romans 8, 7 through 8 tells us, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. God. And I know that I've been giving you a lot of these like negative verses that talk about how bad we are. But again, it's, it's that idea of we cannot see the beauty of the light dawning unless we're in the midst of darkness. We have to understand the darkness of our hearts and what we would always choose to understand what the light of the world actually means and whom the light of the world actually exists. And that's in Jesus and Tom Schreiner, he's helpful in this. He says, Christ did not die for sinners because he detected in them an inclination toward God or a desire to end the enmity toward him. He died to overcome the enmity and hostility of the ungodly toward God. Think about that for a moment. Because there's always this inclination in my heart to think, hey, look at this. I have something to offer. Surely he sees this in me. Surely he's looking at me today and be like, you know what? I'm just bringing some stuff to the table today. We're gonna, it's going to be a good day. But there's never an inclination in my mind or heart, truly, without Christ intervening, that I would ever want to do away with the hostility of my nature toward God. Because without him, I would never know to choose him. Without him, I would always be hostile toward him because he would be the antithesis of what I would seek to choose naturally again and again and again. And you guys know that to be true. 
Christ is the agent of our salvation. And Christ is the only agent of our salvation. We must remember this. We must always remind our hearts that we can do nothing to earn God's favor. And this is the thing, and the kicker about this is that's freeing, right? To know that I don't have to perform. I don't have to dance monkey for Jesus, right? Like he's not ordering me like, come on, do this thing. Rather saying, hey, come to me. I've already done this for you. Our role in our redemption and atonement is trusting what Jesus has done to secure our forgiveness in God's eyes. We cannot and should not seek to add anything to that truth. And in Galatians, the Apostle Paul is addressing a church who is dealing with this influx of poor theology. There's this group coming in called the Judaizers. If you have any idea of the, you know, the context of Galatians, these are people who claim to have faith in Jesus, but they also practice the ways of the Old Testament covenant, meaning they are trying to blend religion with faith. And I would say religion with saving faith, right? Because, I mean, they could have faith in their religion, and we talked about that last week. But religious persistence with salvific faith. They're trying to blend these things. And what they're actually doing is they're walking up to Gentile believers, and they're inviting them into practicing the law and saying, you have to follow the law as well as believe in Jesus to actually be reconciled with God. This is primarily seen in their attempts to have the male Gentile followers of Jesus be circumcised to reflect what God asked of his nation of Israel. And I don't want to spend too much time on circumcision because I've already said it now three times tonight. It's kind of weird. Or even have to say it any more times. But it's important because circumcision, there it is again, scripturally speaking, was this demarcation of God's holy people. I cannot explain to you why it was God's demarcation of his holy people. But it was. And there's this part of me that believes the Judaizers had these good intentions. Like they wanted to make sure that the Gentile believers were truly incorporated to the fold. But believe it or not, I tend to think the best of people initially. (laughs) But I also have to understand, and I can't prove that they would think this way, but I also know that we have a tendency to always resort back to creating a Jesus and theology. We're so prone to that, especially regarding salvation. And because of the Judaizers, Jesus and theology, Paul felt the need to address the Galatian believers this way in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And if you recall from last week, we were actually given the law to show us our need for Jesus. To pretty much show us that we can never measure up. So Paul just shares succinctly that one's justification in God's eyes is not through any act of ours, but belief in and trust in Jesus. So our role in atonement is faith. Our role in atonement is faith in Christ alone. And next I want us to see the result of the atonement. So again, let's return to our main passage briefly. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And now Romans chapter 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Each of these passages shows us what Jesus does on our behalf, the results he provides through his atoning work. What do these verses say we have? We have peace, 
We have hope in the glory of God, and we have freedom and recognition that we are no longer condemned for our sins. That should get you a little jazz tonight. And I, what's really intriguing to me, too, is this notion of peace. Because, again, pointing back to Thomas Schreiner's work, he talks about this word being this throwback to the same word used in the Hebrew scriptures, shalom. Which is this idea of the people always seeking to be in shalom with their creator, meaning ultimate peace. And it was this reflection of looking ahead of the culmination of the end times. Of when God is victorious. And when he has set things completely right. That we would be at peace and at rest with him. So here we have this word reflecting that Old Testament idea. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Getting slightly ahead of myself here. But think about the implications of that in your life. How would your life look different if you walked in the peace that you know you ultimately already have in Christ because of what he's achieved? If you walked every day recognizing I am at peace with the one who's called me his own, who created me, who knit me together in my mother's womb. And I will experience this peace in greater and greater and greater detail once I'm face to face with him for eternity. If that is the source of my joy in the daily today, I think I would live a little differently. I think I would be able to approach my schedule slightly differently. I think I would prioritize things a little bit differently. But not only that, what about the, the hope and the glory of God? This is not us saying that we will hope that, you know, we kind of have this semi, oh, this is a nice little hope that God's going to come through for us. No, this is a confident, secure notion that we will experience the glory of God. Semantically, that's exactly what he's saying. This confident and secure notion that we will experience the glory of God. So we have these things given to us through faith in Jesus. Not only that, but freedom that we are no longer condemned for our sins. You remember a moment ago when I mentioned that passage that says we are by nature hostile toward God? That we are children of wrath? If we don't know Jesus, we walk in condemnation. And that's not putting God in a bad place. That's putting God in a righteous, just place. He has every right to hold that against us. And so when I'm walking in that condemnation, I'm actually ignoring who I'm meant to be. Who I've been called to be, according to Scripture. But, because of Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who believe. And we are free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And if you are a type A, I have to perform kind of person, you can breathe that sigh of relief. You are free from the law of sin and death. All right, so I want to look to our, our final main point here this evening. And that's Christ alone being fully sufficient. So again, returning to Paul's letter to the Galatians, we can read this again from chapter 2, but later on in verses 20 through 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And then in chapter 5, verses 2 through 4, same book, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. 
You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from Christ, from grace. These are strong words. And as we end, near the end of our time together tonight, I felt it would be important for us to really understand the implication of Christ alone for us in our personal walks of faith. And I want this to be one of your major takeaways this evening. Following from our discussion of our role in our atonement, or lack thereof really, that our faith and trust, herein lies the crux of Solus Christus, that what he has accomplished is indeed complete. It is complete. His work is entirely sufficient for our salvation. And Paul's point in this letter to the Galatians is actually a warning. And John Piper, again, is helpful here. He says, if law-keeping in my life adds something to the righteousness that I need for God to be turned from his wrath to favor, if I add some law-keeping to what Christ has done when he died, then his death is useless. If you even add 1%, then Christ's death is useless. Piper hits the reformer's realization on the head. Because when we seek to add to the gospel the understanding of what Jesus has done for us in God's eyes, we actively reject the gospel, whether or not we intend to. And for us as believers, you may think, okay, we can't reject it after we've been saved. And that may be true, but we reject our fellowship with the Lord in those moments because we seek to add to what he's already accomplished. And so we tend to turn away from the truth that already identifies us as his son or daughter in Christ. And we reject it because we say that Jesus is not sufficient to provide salvation. That his life, his death, and his resurrection were not viable in God's eyes to effectively atone for our trespasses. And I share this not to freak you out, but to encourage you to walk in the beautifully, incredibly truth that we do not have to do anything to earn God's favor. I want to repeat that. We do not have to do anything to earn God's favor. And each week, I get the sense that we need to be reminded of that truth. I need to be reminded of that truth. We do not have to do anything to earn God's favor. His favor is ours in Christ. Solus Christus is at the core of the gospel for that very reason. And so I want to invite you to deal with your understanding of that this evening. If you are a believer in Jesus, I want you to deal with the fact that you cannot daily strive to add to what he's already done. You're not going to earn extra favor in God's eyes. Rather, you get to exist in his favor as Christ's child and, and brother and sister in Christ. So I want to encourage you to exist as a believer in Jesus, made whole in what Christ has done. I want to encourage you to walk in the fact that you don't have to earn favor because you're in his favor. And if you're not a believer in Jesus tonight, if you're wrestling with this truth, I want you to be willing to say, you know what, I'm really tired of trying to hold up my righteousness. I'm really tired of bearing my own righteousness on my shoulders and trying to prove my worth to a God who may or may not love me. I promise you there is a God who loves you. And he says, drop your righteousness because I'm going to give you Christ's. Come to him. And if you have questions about that, please come find me. Find Kate or Nathan or Allison or Jason or any of our student leaders. Let us discuss what the truth of the gospel means for our lives and how you can be free from the bondage of trying to bear your own righteousness and actually existing in the bondage of sin and actually walk in freedom, free from condemnation. Come to him. 
You don't have to earn his favor. You exist in his favor through Jesus. So come to him. And the last question I have for you tonight, it's not going to be on the screen, is what do I do with this? If I am a non-believer, I would ask that you seriously consider this and pray and ask the Lord to move in your mind and heart. Because I promise you, if you are sincerely praying those things, the Holy Spirit will move. But more than that, if you are a believer this evening and you are effectively rejecting the truth that you already have in existence and identity in Jesus, I want you to step back Calm yourself down and allow yourself to walk in peace. To realize that your identity is actually a person of peace in Jesus. You are a child of God. You get to exist in shalom. You get to taste now what we'll experience for eternity. And that doesn't mean that you're going to be some weird person walking around like trying to tap into some weird energy source. That's not what I'm saying. Like people are going to look at you weird if you do that. So don't do that. But I do think you can find rest. And I actually think that that's a lot of what Jesus invites us into in our earthly life, is rest and a source of knowing that our joy is found in him, and we can be sent from that place. So when we find our peace, when we recognize he's our peace, it's a lot easier for us to engage those who are wrestling with strivings and tirelessly trying to prove things or feeling beaten down. It's in those moments that we can extend a hand of invitation and recognize that it's actually Jesus working through us. So I want to invite you into that. I want to invite you into that peace, to walk in that peace and realize who you are in Christ without condemnation, free from sin, and already experiencing the peace that we will have for eternity. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for this evening.